to this Active IQ podcast. My name is Dr. Dane Vishnubala and I'm the Chief Medical Advisor for Active IQ. Today I'm joined by Dale Forsteich, um, who is a member of the York St. John academic team um, and it will be contributing to the development of our corrective exercise qualification. So first of all, welcome Dale. Thank you, welcome. Um, thanks for coming on um, and really I guess it would be great to start with just telling us a little bit about yourself. Yep, so uh, like I say, I'm, I'm Dale Forsdyke. Uh, as a, a professional, I've got three roles. Um, I've got an education role, I've got a research role, uh, and I have a, an applied portfolio as well. Uh, in terms of the, the education role, uh, it's really important that you know I've worked with students, I've worked with uh, instructors before to try and develop their practice uh, across a range of settings. Uh, as a researcher, I am a sports injury researcher. I'm probably best known in terms of my research around psychosocial factors that contribute to us getting injured, but also psychosocial factors that may enhance our return to sport outcomes as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and however, I've also researched around PNF stretching. I've also uh, researched around hip and groin strength and what happens during a simulated game uh, to our hip and groin strength in a hope that I can improve practice uh, and prevent some hip and groin injuries. In terms of my applied work, uh, it's pretty varied. Uh, Most of my applied work has been in elite women's or elite girls football. Uh, I've had a number of of roles there in terms of a head of science and medicine approach. Um, So currently I work with York City Regional Talent Club um, we do a lot around the screening for injuries uh, and we also do a lot around injury prevention. Obviously, it's not the demographic from under 10 to under 16 yeah. to have a significant amount of injuries. Yeah. So there's a lot that we can do on the pitch, off the pitch with the players in a hope that you know, those injuries are prevented before they, they're started. Um, so that, that's a really uh, a short background to, to who I am and, and the various roles that I have. No, perfect. Um, and I guess, you know, we're really excited to have you on this corrective exercise course just because you've got the kind of academic and the clinical application. Um, and obviously you teach on one of the sports injury prevention courses. Um, so it'd be great to hear just a little bit more about the, the course that you run at St. John. Yeah, so uh, currently at York St. John, I teach on our BSc in Sport and Exercise Therapy. Uh, we actually named it Sport and Exercise Therapy to reflect it's for sports people, individual and, and, and team-based, but also for the regular exercises as well. Uh, obviously, sports injuries aren't just uh, for those that play yeah. sport. Uh, with that, uh, we have one of the modules which focus on sports injury prevention. Uh, in which we try and get our students to take a real multidisciplinary approach to preventing sports injuries. Uh, so yes, we cover the, the physical parts of preventing injury, but there are a number of different other factors which may contribute to our overall injury risk. Uh, obviously, we teach them around correct screening and appropriate screening. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's both sensitive, uh, specific and, and, and has high levels of reliability. Uh, but we also teach them about using exercise, psychosocial factors, uh, and also the role of external factors, one being the coach, which is a, a, a real big risk factor of, of injury. Uh, in the past, uh, I have delivered various vocational awards, uh, ranging from uh, level three and level four fitness awards, 
uh, and also taught on a number of soft tissue therapy uh, awards as well at level three and level four. Okay. And um, I understand that you guys used to deliver quite a few active IQ awards integrated into the... The program? Yeah, so we did the level three sports massage. Yeah. Uh, so that was integrated into the program uh, and that fit really nicely in a soft tissue therapy module mm. uh, in terms of the anatomy underpinning that, but then actually some of the, the requisite skills that they need. Uh, and we've historically run the, the gym instructors here as well. So, perfect. No, sounds good. So I guess to, to really get us kicked off, um, I think in this kind of corrective exercise injury space, there's always this kind of challenge to the average person of, well, who should I see? Who should I refer to? Is it a physiotherapist? Is it a sports therapist? Is it a sports rehab guy? Uh, is it someone else entirely? Um, and I just wondered if you could kind of give us a bit of a flavour of, of this landscape, who the different roles are and maybe what the differences and similarities are. Yeah, and then that's a really good question. And uh, I can't really stand up and say I have a definitive delineation between those. Mm. Uh, however, I can give my kind of educated opinion in, in terms of where they, they would all stand. So often people start looking at that as a fragmented approach and saying I would see a physio or a sports therapist or an SNC coach or a sport rehabber. Actually, in the overall care of a, an athlete, an individual athlete, they may very well work together and work really effectively together. I think to start having a look at delineating or, or separating out roles and responsibilities, we need to look at their training uh, and, and background. Now that isn't to say that a physiotherapist can study further qualifications and develop in terms of their sport domain knowledge. Mm -hmm. Likewise, a sports therapist uh, go on and do some more hospital, more clinical and, and multiple pathology-based uh, CPD. In terms of their training, I think the recognition is they're all exercise specialists, or they certainly should be exercise specialists. It's yeah. in the name, they are all physical therapists. Um, I think if we look at the physiotherapy's role, uh, an excellent professional uh, who's, who has to have an exposure to a number of different pathologies, uh, has to have uh, the routine of being able to work with people in inpatients, outpatients, across those pathologies, ranging from paediatrics to stroke rehab, orthopedics, MSK. So they've got a really good broad clinical brush uh, around their training. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a real benefit of that. Um, a sports therapist, on the other hand, and I need to... You know, I had to sit back and go, I am slightly biased. I'm yeah. a member of the Society of Sports Therapists. Yeah. Is their whole training is a much more performance-based model with yeah. working with injuries. So they will typically do their three years of training purely on sport-related musculoskeletal uh, knowledge, understanding and yeah. skills. So typically in a sports therapist training, there'll be more onus on first aid, trauma management applied into the sports field. Mm -hmm. There'll be much more work applied to uh, reconditioning of athletes. And yeah. I use that term reconditioning as opposed to conditioning because that's really what we, we're focused on with injuries. We tend not to think about uh, where what can't they do? We tend to focus on what you know. What's the end point, and we work back from there. Mm. So, reconditioning is a normal athletic transition. 
uh, it happens when the off season, it happens when they're injured and, and it tends to focus on that and really good exercise selection, exercise programming. Uh, sports therapists tend to have whole modules on, on injury prevention as well. Okay. Uh, in terms of strength and conditioning coaches, their exercise selection, exercise programming, exercise instruction should be absolutely excellent because that's the, the, the bread and butter of that qualification really. Uh, where S&C coaches may see revalue, particularly in awards such as this, is it moves them to a more clinical way of thinking okay. uh, as opposed to just purely around performance. Okay. Um, I guess lastly, just a, it's more a question I always have is, so sports therapy versus a sports rehabber, is there a significant difference? How they govern? Are they different? Yeah, so there are a number of, of, of accrediting bodies um, and the four main ones in that domain are the Society of Sports Therapists, the British Association of Sport Rehabilitators and, and Trainers, BASRAT, Mm -hmm. uh, there are also two newer organisations in the Sports Therapy Organisation and the Sports Therapy Association. Yeah. They are very, very close. Uh, what I would say is if people are interested in looking at those, each of the website will have their professional accrediting body core competencies and, and requirements. For me to separate sports therapy and, and sport rehabilitators out, it is really very, very close. Yeah. Um, uh, in so much as each course will differ slightly, so it's almost impossible. Yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, and I think, you know, some of the active IQ guys will already know this, that uh, especially like a level four in sports massage, like the STO, um, they can actually gain entry as long as they've met certain other criteria and the course they're accredited. So, I mean, it's definitely worth our students having a look at that. Yeah, and having my experience of teaching soft tissue-based uh, mm. awards is just being, you know, being mindful of what is the, the limits of that award. Yeah. Um, so at what point can I deal with non-pathological tissue versus at what point can I deal with pathological tissue? Where does that threshold come? Um, and if, I'm not, if I haven't been trained within those conditions that actually I should be referring on. And that's a, a central yeah. point to the courses. And I think that's one of the conversations why we're hopefully trying to redefine what these roles are. Because, I mean, many of our students have degrees um, and have then gone on to do level four, but there may be others who run clinics themselves yeah. in level four. Uh, and I think, you know, many of this is when can they refer, who should they refer to? So hopefully that uh, gives us some food for thought about what they can have a look at uh, and where they might be able to refer in, in future. Yeah. So Nick, that's really useful. Because I think it's always one of those questions you ask yourself, well, who should I refer to now if I've got this problem? Is it which of these guys should I refer to? Yeah, and I'm, I'm from the belief that it can be complementary. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also from the belief that there isn't a hierarchy in that. So there's no hierarchy around, well, you should refer to a physio first, before a sports therapist, before a, a sport rehabilitator and, and, and trainer, yeah. uh, that actually they've got the right skill sets. Yeah. Uh, the rehabilitators and trainers and the sports therapists, their bread and butter is within probably sport-related musculoskeletal injuries, uh, whereas a physiotherapist, they're classically trained in, in an NHS environment yeah. on a rotation, and, and so they may have a broader sweep of a, num a range of pathologies. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, so I guess moving onwards, I guess a lot of our corrective exercise qualification is 
Um, you know, there's a lot of things there around potentially injury prevention. Uh, also, as, as we discussed before, maybe about moving better. Um, and I guess where, who and where does corrective exercise fit into all of these different roles? Um, who do you see this qualification being useful for? Yeah, if I, if I take that question in, in, in two parts, if that's okay. The first yeah. bit is, who do I see this, this fitting and being a mm-hmm. really uh, beneficial professional development opportunity? Uh, and then secondly, where do I see corrective exercise training fitting within there? So for me, I see this as a, a really useful professional development opportunity for people who work as personal trainers, people working as strength and conditioning coaches, uh, or those people that may have done a, a level four or a level three in, in sports massage therapy. What it serves as, as doing is it gives them a more clinical framework uh, to hang some of their exercise selection uh, in terms of then dabbling their feet in how we may be able to prevent some injuries happening in the first place in terms of primary prevention. Yeah. It's also beneficial, I think, from you know, reviewing the course and contributing to this for any physiotherapists or sports therapists out there that want to brush up on their musculoskeletal uh, exercise therapy uh, it gives them a really nice and simple way that they can or framework to use in terms of screening athletes but then their exercise selection as well so you know I, I think there's a, a, a wide and diverse variety of exercise professionals that would benefit from this as that almost that introduction to well how can I prevent my individual athlete or how may I prevent my individual athlete being or getting injured uh, when we start dabbling in, uh, in terms of rehabilitation and uh, working in team settings, it's slightly different. So that, that's really the focus of this course, how I see it, is when you're working with that individual athlete or that individual client. Uh, in, in terms of the, what the you know, corrective exercise training is, um, I'm a fan of it, or a fan of this, uh, to be used as an intuitive framework. Mm-hmm. Um, I think practitioners need to have frameworks or, or pathways to, uh, to, you know, to provide structure to their interactions with, with, with their athletes or, or client groups. And the reason I say it's an intuitive framework is if you have a look at it and you read the book and you engage with the course, rather than seeing it as a recipe uh, that you have to do A, B, C to be able to get to Z, if we use it intuitively within the context that we work in, yeah. uh, then I think that, that it provides a really useful framework to, to working with people. And again, improving or their performance, I think that's missed out a little bit in terms of if we can work with them with this corrective exercise training framework, we may, or undoubtedly we may uh, improve performance, but it also may help reduce injuries as well. Mm. And if we think about it, uh, all we're really trying to do is affect the length ten- tension relationships, uh, the neuromuscular uh, ability, uh, and also improve joint kinematics. So if you were to sit there and go, well, this framework is about just allowing people to move better, have better mobility, and actually get them a wee bit stronger, uh, then that's going to tick a lot of the boxes and also is positioned within the, the current evidence base around how we may prevent injuries happening. 
Yeah. Perfect. No, that's interesting. Um, and I guess kind of moving on from that, really, you, you mentioned evidence base, and I think this is a really good point to uh, discuss that. Um, I think the fitness industry, we're sometimes, um, we have this issue of maybe saying things work or things happen without maybe sometimes having that academic backing of saying, well, actually, I can prove this works. Um, and I think it would be useful really to a lot of our listeners really to, if you could kind of explain what you feel is evidence-based practice and, and maybe where it links into corrective exercise a bit. Yeah, so as a practitioner and in my applied portfolio, I tend to be more evidence-informed by evidence-based. I'll explain that in a, a few seconds, but obviously evidence-based practice is grounded in when you're making your decisions, when you're working within a framework with a, an individual athlete or client, we obviously use our experience of, of, of what's worked before, what hasn't worked, and our reflections on that. We tend to use, or we should be using high quality research. Uh, so for people sitting this award, high quality research tends to be things like systematic reviews, like randomized control trials. Uh, and the third arm of evidence-based practice is around well, meeting your patients or your clients' expectations and, and, and values within there. Now, the reason I tend to say, well, I'm a more evidence-led or evidence-informed practitioner uh, is that often the evidence base that we read uh, is, works in a certain context. Yeah. Uh, and people who may be sitting this award work across a multitude of environments. So we need to think, well, what does the high level research maybe tell us, but then take from that, what would work within my environment? So an example within the injury prevention world is the Nordic hamstring uh, exercise. Gold standard systematic reviews, gold standard randomized control trials will say that these are effective in reducing the risk of hamstring injuries. However, what we find is when surveyed, not many athletes and not many teams actually do the correct protocol or actually get their athletes doing Nordic hamstring exercises anyway. So, and, and that's within the field around why something called implementation science is really important in translating what is high quality research findings into the, the right environment and right into the right context. Uh, as far as where the corrective exercise training sits within there, uh, the first thing is it makes perfect theoretical sense. Yeah. Uh, so within the book, within the, the course itself, everything is informed, everything is, is reasoned, all the way through that process of screening an athlete to then inhibiting, uh, to then lengthening, to then activating and finally doing integrated movements. Like I said earlier, if you were to reflect the evidence base and you were saying we want to make athletes or our clients more mobile, at the same time we want them to be able to move more effectively and, move and be stronger, that really reflects a lot of high evidence. But I think we need to sit back and maybe not overstate some of the, uh, the, the, the aims of the corrective exercise. So I think rather than saying to a, a client or an individual athlete, this will definitely prevent your injuries, mm. I think we, we, need, we need to use softer language. So this may help prevent some internal modifiable risk factors of injury, 
mobility, movement quality and, and lack of muscle strength. But we also need to sit back and go, sports injuries are caused by many factors and through exercise corrective exercise training, this may hit a number of these risk factors. But it, it definitely can't uh, or, or impact upon all of them. Yeah. So I guess if you're talking about, you, you mentioned the things that you can control um, and maybe with exercise we can reduce those risks, which potentially overall reduces the risk of an injury. Yeah. What are the kind of things that um, we can't control um, as, a, as a factor for injury? Yeah, so uh, if we, for example, we look at gender, uh, obviously we know that males and females exhibit different injury patterns for, for very different internal modif- uh, non-modifiable risk factors. Uh, so a really good resource for, for readers and listeners to this to, to have a look at is uh, the injury etiology model by Barr and Crosshow, 2005. Uh, and they talk about internal risk factors or intrinsic fra- risk factors uh, combining with external risk factors. Some of those are like your environment, some of them are the opponents. And there's a really uh, cool body of research now focusing on the coach in terms of being a risk factor for, for sports injuries and that these internal external factors come together to then create your predisposed athlete um, and through the exercise training we are hitting a number of the modifiable ones by that the ones we can actually change and manipulate uh, which then may have an, an effect on the overall rate of injuries. No, that sounds good. Um, and I guess kind of just picking out a couple of words that I think some of the guys might not be familiar with. When we talked about evidence-based practice, um, you, you mentioned systematic reviews and randomised control trials. Just, uh, I mean, there'll be quite a few of the readers who've done maybe further university education, but maybe some of the more vocational guys. Could you just clarify what those are in a nutshell for us? Yeah, uh, if I take systematic reviews first, and, and, and often with systematic reviews, they'll use the word meta-analyses. Uh, so don't be afraid of that word. It, a systematic review is uh, it's just a summary of a number of papers. So it has, it's really high in terms of its quality because they take normally the best quality papers out there and they provide a summary uh, with some really good, strong key points to take away from that number of, of studies. Okay. Uh, a randomised control trial is one way to t- tend to find two different research groups or, or populations. One has had a treatment, one has had a placebo or a continuation of nothing to sit and then they do that as a, as a comparison. Perfect. No, that's really useful because I think uh, sometimes in the fitness industry we can, you know, and we've had students where people will trust a blog or a high profile, but sometimes this very famous person is writing something without any evidence to back up their claims. Uh, and I think definitely one of our big pushes, part of Active IQ, is very much how do we push people to understand that they need to look after trusted resources. Um, and hopefully, with time, start to push people to start looking at research themselves. Yeah, and I mean, the two things with that uh, is what often appears in newspapers, magazines, online uh, may be partly true, uh, but it's empowering people that may be doing this qualification to start going, well, does this work? Or in themselves be comfortable in answering the question, why am I doing this? Yeah. Um, because if there's no evidence to suggest why you're doing it, 
then it just seems uh, a fruitless exercise and there might be other things you can do where the evidence is, is better. The other bit is often we look to elite sport in terms of what should mirror the best evidence-based practice. Uh, so if kind of people taking this award look at, uh, look at kind of elite sport and what they're doing and find out actually they're not mirroring evidence-based practice, what, that's why I mean by context, yeah. uh, they might be doing what's right within their context, uh, not necessarily what the research says. No, I think that's that's key, isn't it? It's always constantly challenging ourselves to say, you know, why do we do this? And it, and it, the answer can't just be because we've always done it. It's, yeah. you know, does it still work? Is this the right thing to do? Or should I be looking elsewhere? Uh, and I guess hopefully, you know, with your help as well, the qualification that we're delivering here will hopefully allow students to make good decisions about the exercise they give and why they give it. And hopefully with time to challenge them to also go, well, you know, what we talk about today may not be right tomorrow. So... How can we future-proof you for that? Yeah, and, and that's why the, the framework provided by this is so useful and, and that people doing this award should see it as intuitive as opposed to this is a one-size-fits-all approach yeah. to every athlete ever in every context. Yeah, no, exactly. So uh, kind of going on from that, um, and this is, you know, this is an area that's been done quite a lot. So uh, FMS or functional movement screening, it's been around for a little while now. Uh, you know, there's some industries that call it the bee's knees. This is, you know, do functional movement screening. It's your answer to everything. Um, so I was hoping, I mean, for, you might tell us a little bit about your understanding of what FMS is, um, especially for some of the guys who may not know what it is, um, and then your thoughts around it. Yeah, so screening itself is quite controversial at the moment uh, in terms of why do we, we screen and, and the value of screening so there's a little bit of an, a, a debate out there at the moment uh, so and it's a couple of, of, of eminent researchers so Roald Bear uh, questioned the whole value of screening uh, in terms of being able to predict uh, sports injuries um, and that's been kind of addressed recently by Evert Verhagen and, and colleagues who have said, well, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, and that's the actual name of the, the article, uh, to say, well, they do have some value. In terms of the, the FMS, I, I have a real balanced approach to this. I think the FMS was probably the first of its type where we started to look critically at how athletes or clients move. Um, and we did it, we looked at seven different exercises, we, it came up with a really friendly way that we could apply criteria to how, how athletes move globally. So there are obviously tests in there for the lower body, the trunk and the upper body. Mm. Uh, I think what's happened there is people have, have taken that and tried to test it in maybe domains that it was never intended. So for example, taking the FMS and taking the magical I'm gonna score each exercise out of three and taking the magical 14 as if you're above 14, you're gonna get injured. If you're below 14, you're not gonna get injured. Lo and behold, when that's been tested, it's come back as to say, well, no, that's not the case. Mm. But I'm not sure that was ever the intention of the functional movement screen. Uh, for me, I find it useful in terms of just trying to qualify how my athletes might be moving. Some of the benefits of that are it's, it's intuitive, uh, it gets you being able to, to score, 
people. Some of the downsides are we need to think about what the reliability of the FMS is. We also need to think about some people have actually taken only a few of the exercises from the functional movement screen as opposed to the full battery as well. And it's whether those individual exercises are as good as the full battery in terms of its usage. Okay, no, that sounds good. Um, and I guess hopefully in the qualification we will explore all those aspects anyway. So, um, But I think, I think the key point you make there really is that it's about understanding the tool and knowing when to use it and when not to. Uh, don't want to open the can of worms today, but I guess BMI would, would really much fall into that category for something PTs hate, but actually, in my opinion, has a place as long as you know what it's used for. Without a doubt. Uh, so I'm working in a team setting. Mm -hmm. um, so if we start looking at body composition assessments as, as an example, uh, if I've got a team of 30, me doing individual skinfold caliper assessment of body fat is actually quite time consuming and, and, and doesn't fit within my context. Yeah. So we tend to use heights and weights and lower behind we can look at, look at BMI um, as a, just as a useful indicator. Accepting its reliability issues, uh, accepting its validity issues, particularly those that are discriminated with the amount of lean tissue that they actually have. Uh, and then obviously with things like BMI or taking routine weight throughout a season, you would normally do things like bioelectrical impedance, skinfold calipers as an exception as opposed to the rule. Now if you're working with an individual client, then actually you might want to take their individual uh, skinfolds uh, and look at their overall body percentage. But I do think BMI has its, has its place without a doubt. Cool. No, that's great. Um, so I guess uh, really to kind of f finish off our chat together, I think firstly, you know, there, there's lots of kind of exciting stuff coming out of the corrective exercise. Um, I think, like you said, it's a framework for us to hang stuff on, but clearly a key skill for many of our PTs to learn, uh, as well as S&C coaches, physios and other allied health professionals. So, um, you know, when it comes out over the next few months, that'll be... Uh, It'll be good to probably catch up again and maybe have a chat as well and yeah. see what you think. Um, most of you will be seeing uh, Dale's videos uh, as part of a part of the resource. Um, but I guess kind of to finish off, so for a lot of the guys who have an interest in more the injury side or screening side or a little bit more around this area, is there any kind of courses or other things that you would recommend or signpost to? Yeah, I mean... I think we also need to realise as, 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 as exercise professionals, if I use kind of that um, umbrella mm. term, that allied to the corrective exercise training, which the manual, the course is very much around what do you do, what do you do, uh, a lot of the work with an exercise professional is how do you do it. And it's not underselling the meaningful interactions, the communications, the cue points with the exercises, and the need for good dis multidisciplinary work. So that, and that needs highlighting, I, I think, a little bit. Uh, in terms of uh, resources, there are some really cool free online courses at the moment. Uh, and I'll just name kind of three just to, to highlight. Uh, when I talk about it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. The British Medical Journal have got a free online motivational interviewing course. Uh, which actually would sit very nicely alongside the screening and the taking a medical history that fits within the corrective exercise training syllabus. 
There's also a, a, a very good uh, free FIFA diploma in football medicine. Uh, for those that might want to uh, have a look at expanding maybe some more of their clinical knowledge, uh, but it also has some really nice modules on examination and an assessment of individual joints, which again complements what's in the manual and the syllabus. But it also has some really nice modules on working with special populations or even around injury prevention as well. So they can further put that into context. Where does this qualification sit within the, that kind of overall sports injury prevention? And probably the last one is the International Olympic Committee uh, Medical uh, Department have, have put together a fantastic online app called Get Set. Um, in which uh, your athletes, your clients or, or yourself can actually start, download that, can start having a look at a range of exercises that again complement what will be covered in this uh, syllabus and, and, and the manual. And you can search those exercises based on uh, the body uh, site. So there are exercises for shoulder, elbow, hip, knee, ankle. Uh, or you can actually search that for sport and maybe get some sport specific injury prevention exercises. All of those, as you would naturally believe, are, are evidence informed. Sounds good. Um, I think it's always useful to know where to go and learn more as well. So, um, And hopefully for the guys doing this qualification, this will all be kind of complementary knowledge. Um, so no, perfect. Thanks very much for your time today, Dale. You're uh, welcome. And uh, I guess for you guys, um, all the links that Dale's been talking about will be on the Active IQ website. So do have a look and um, see if that's of interest to you. Um, and the corrective exercise qualification will be launched over the next few months. So do look out for it. Um, and in the meanwhile, we'll see you on the next podcast. Thank you.